There was something strange going on with one of the planets in our solar system and the astronomers could not figure out what it was. The year was 1845 and the planet Uranus, thought to be the last planet out there, had been discovered 64 years earlier and astronomers had had time to watch a complete orbit and try to observe. Something strange was going on. Here's a picture of Uranus. Uranus had a, has a perfectly elliptical orbit. You see it there. But every now and then, something would happen where the orbit would bend out of shape and then snap back in as if nothing had ever happened. And they couldn't explain it. Newton's law of gravity could not explain it. They didn't know what it was. And finally... A German astronomer by the name of Johann Gottfried Galley in the Berlin Observatory figured it out. There was another planet out there beyond Uranus. And they named it Neptune. Here's a picture of Neptune. Both have similar colors because of the gases that are there, both of them being outer planets. And so the bending of Uranus in the orbit, what it was, it was the influence of Neptune was so great that it would affect the orbit of Uranus and pull it out and then it would get away from it and it would pop back in. You see, the sun was so far away that Neptune's influence was greater than that of the sun and it greatly affected Uranus. And they finally figured that out. There's a spiritual lesson there. Negative influences are the greatest when you get farthest from the sun. As we come to the fifth of our five events after Peter's confession in our sermon series, Jesus talks about the power of influence. Those people you influence. Those people who influence you and your body parts that influence yourself. Read with me, starting in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, 
tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We close our sermon series today entitled Point of No Return. And I've shared with you how Jesus took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi and asked them, who do men say that I am? And they started offering answers. John the Baptist, uh, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And it was Peter that spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And with that one statement, everything changed. Everything in Jesus' future, everything about his ministry with that one statement, he began to get a lot more serious, a lot more challenging. Some theologians say even a little more harsh with his disciples. He became, he became focused on the cross after that one statement. And so the next five things that happen after that statement are critical. And we've looked at those five. First of all, Jesus told his disciples, stop doing what you're doing. Second of all, the transfiguration went up on a high mountain. His, his clothes, his, his hair, his face changed, became bright. After that, he came back down the mountain. The disciples were there. They were powerless. They couldn't cast out a demon. And then they started leaving to go back down to Capernaum from Caesarea Philippi. And, and you remember that the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest. And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst and said, that if you want to be great, you have to be like this child. And now we come to the last event. Jesus talks about influence. Be careful who you influence and who influences you. Look at letter A on your outline, outcasts. That's where we begin. Verses 38 41, outcasts. As we closed last week, Jesus had taken a child, put them in the midst, and said, if you want to be great, you must be like this child. And then John spoke up and said something. John being one of the disciples. Now, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark John says anything. He doesn't say anything until now. And what I find interesting is Jesus had now predicted three times He's going to the cross and dying and rising again. And after all three predictions, immediately a disciple said something and they were all wrong. Peter said something after the first prediction. James said something after the second prediction. And now John says something after the third prediction. Peter, James, and John. Who are they? It's the inner circle. Those are the one closest to Jesus than anybody, and they all three got it wrong. Well, John spoke up. Jesus, we have a problem. What? Well, I, I just been outside because they were still in the house. I, I, I just been outside, and there was a man out there who was trying to cast out a demon, and he was using your name. And I tried to stop him. Why would you try to stop him? 
Because he's not one of us. He's not one of the 12 disciples. He was, he was just a man who I, I guess believes in you or believes in your name, but he's not one of our group. And so he shouldn't be doing that. And I tried to stop him. And Jesus said, oh, hold, hold on, hold on. Don't try to stop him. Can you, can you imagine that? The guy's out there. In the name of Jesus, demon, I, I cast you out. And John shows, oh, you can't do that. Why not? Uh, you're not one of the 12. Can, can you imagine that? Jesus said, if he's not for us, he's not against us, he's for us. I mean, there's, there's no neutrality with Christ, folks. You're either all in or you're not. And there's no middle ground. And I know sometimes we, we go to church on Sundays and we're thinking, well, I'm, I'm really not all in all that they're singing about and talking about, but I'm not against Jesus either. I'm kind of in between right now. No, you're not. You're either all in or you're all out. Jesus said you're for us or you're against us, but there's no neutral ground. I mean, I mean, at least the man was successful in casting out the demon. If you go back 10 verses, the disciples couldn't even do that. And so Jesus makes a powerful point. Just because they're not in your group doesn't mean they're not one of mine. Now, folks, in every church, there are Christian circles of people who congregate and don't let anybody else in happens in every church you like people in that group you've been in that group a long time this church has been here 153 years some of you have been here a long time and somebody new comes to our church and you don't let them in because they're not one of you happens all the time Yeah, preacher, you tell those young people, those youth, they're bad about that. It's not just youth, it's children, it's adults. Somebody wants to join your Sunday school class, that's fine, you don't get my chair. <laughs> and then on Sunday morning, you go, all of those people you know, Two people walk into the church, one visiting for the first time, and somebody is one of your friends, and you go straight to your friend and say nothing to anybody else. You see, we have to be careful with our influence. And among people who are in our circles. Jesus talked about this. Have you ever heard people say about the exact same church, Boy, that church, I just, it's the best church I've ever been a part of. Everybody loves you there, and everybody's so friendly. I just love, I have the best church in the world. And somebody else goes, yeah, I visited the same church. Nobody ever spoke to me. They're both right. They're both right. This one over here, they have a group, and that group, they like each other, and they fellowship, and they do things together, and they pray for each other, and they support each other. They like each other a lot. And the group over here, they just showed up, and this group is having so much fun, they never noticed them over here. They're both right. 
And Jesus said, that's wrong. Careful about, about looking down upon those who may not be a, a part of your circle, who may not be a part of the 12. Because if they're for Christ, they're for us. Let's go to letter B. It gets a little more serious. Stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks. Now, Jesus starts to get a little more serious about influence. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Now, I've heard all my life growing up, he's talking about little kids. Be careful how you treat little kids. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about new believers. They may be a child, they may be a teenager, they may be 80 years old and be a little one of his. So, so I, I've always heard this, well, you got to be careful. Don't treat kids badly because God will get angry. No, no, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about new people in the faith. Be careful. He said, it would be better if that person who caused a new person in the faith to somehow be led down the wrong road, it would be better for that person to have a millstone put around their neck and tossed into the ocean. Now, there were two kind of millstones in those days, and the, the Greek wording shows this in our passage this morning. There was one millstone that was smaller that you would take and you would use it to grind meal by hand. And so very, they were smaller, but then there were larger millstones that it took a donkey, uh, that they'd put around the donkey's a harness there, and, and the donkey would walk around and it would crush the meal. It was a lot heavier. It weighed about 3,300 pounds. Here's a picture of a larger millstone. That's a large one. You see right in the middle of it where they would hook it up, and, and that's a, see the man standing there, how large it is. Weighed about 3,300 pounds. It was much larger. And the Greek wording that Jesus used was the big one. Now, did that ever happen? Yes. It had just happened before he spoke this. Acts 5.37 references, but he, it references it. But here's what happened. Just before Jesus spoke this, there had been an uprising in the Roman government. The zealots among the Jews, led by a man by the name of Judas of Galilee, Judas the Galilean, he led an uprising against the Roman government. The government caught him after they put the insurrection down, caught him, and his punishment put a large millstone around his neck and tossed him into the ocean. So it's fresh on everyone's mind. And it was the talk. Did you hear what happened? Yeah. So the Jews retaliated. Up in the Galilee region, Herod sent some officials up there, and the Galileans gathered around, got revenge. They captured one of the officials of the Roman government, put a millstone around his neck, and tossed him into the Sea of Galilee. And it was the talk in the culture. Did you hear what? Yeah. Now, the Jews had an intense fear of water. I've shared that with you before. Afraid of water. Wait a minute, they're fishermen. Yes, they were, but they were scared of water. 
The reason was, there was a belief in those days, and the Jews bought into it, that, that things lived under the water. There were ghosts down there. Whenever you died, sometimes you went to the bottom of an ocean, and, and there were things down there. Remember when Jesus was walking on the water, and the disciples go, it's a ghost, in the middle of the night. They thought a ghost had come up from the bottom. They thought the boogeyman lived at the bottom of the water, and there was a great fear of the depths. In fact, so many of the Psalms, Lord, do not cast me to the depths. And Jonah, that's why it was such a big deal with him. They feared water. And so, so to be having a millstone placed on your neck and thrown in, I mean, you're, you can't breathe and you're suffocating and the weight takes you down to the very depths of where all the ghosts are. That was frightening to them. And it happened. And it's the talk of the communities. And Jesus said, it would be better for that to happen to you than what's going to happen with me if you lead a new believer astray. Probably got their attention. How do we lead new believers astray? How does that happen? Well, we have a tendency to make them church members, not Christ followers. We we have a tendency to make them be good members of First Baptist Church of Garland rather than make them great followers of Jesus Christ. We introduce them to church, but not to discipleship. We, we also have a tendency to get them involved socially, but not in ministry. Somebody gets saved. Oh, I want to invite you to our party. Why not invite them to a ministry that you're doing and they work side by side with you and teach them how to serve? So many times we want to make them good members, not good disciples. And then they join it, and you want to tell them all the Sunday school, all that you don't like about your Sunday school class, and you think needs to be changed. They don't care. And you're trying to just get them involved in social aspects when they need to be disciples of Jesus. Be careful your influence, especially when somebody is saved. I was saved when I was in the fourth grade. I was nine years old, First Baptist Church of Boswell, Oklahoma, small town. And I was saved one Sunday morning, and I went to school the next day, and that's all I talked about was getting saved. That's back in those days you could talk about that at school. And, and so I, I talked about it at school. I told my, my teacher how I got saved, telling her all about it. I talked about it at church, talked about it in my, in my family for about six weeks. I was so excited. It's all I talked about until a member of the First Baptist Church of my hometown told me one day, would you stop talking about that so much? And I was hurt. I was shocked. And I thought, I thought it was a big deal. I don't guess it is. So I got quiet. And I became just like them. I sat on the pew on Sundays like this. <sighs> I became just like them. 
careful, careful your influence. Because you can influence a new believer for good or for bad. And Jesus said, watch out. I'm watching you. But now he gets a little more serious. He starts talking about hell. It's interesting, the Sistine Chapel was, uh, was painted by Michelangelo there in 1500s, mid-1500s, and there, it depicts scenes of the judgment and creation, things like that. Here's a picture of the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. What happened was, 1500s when it was originally painted, and there's a description of, of hell and the judgment, all that. It started over time that the altar candles would cause it to darken, soot would develop, and just light and different things. So in the mid-1980s, they started to refurbish it. And so they started to make it brighter and refurbish it. And whenever they did, there, there began to be criticism that the, that the scenes of hell were too vivid. <laughs> that, that they made them too bright. And when you walk in and you're looking at it and you see this bright description uh, and depiction of hell, it's a little too much. Well, when Jesus gave us a description, it was worse than that. So I want you to listen to what he said. Jesus was taught more about hell than anybody else in the New Testament. So I want you to listen. He told his disciples, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It is better for you to go to heaven one-handed than hell two-handed. And if your feet are causing you to do something wrong, cut your foot off. It's better to be lame and enter life and go to hell with two feet. And if there's something about your eye that's causing you to sin, pluck your eye out. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. Now, obviously, Jesus was not talking literally. He was using hyperbole or using an idiom. Um, you, he wasn't talking physically. In fact, you could only cut your hand. You only do that twice. Actually, do it once. You wouldn't have a hand to cut the other one off with. He wasn't talking physically. Now, some people over the years have taken it physically. Origen was one who uh, mutilated his body because he felt like he was having sexual sins in, in his mind. And so he thought, okay, that's how you take care of it. And that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about spiritual surgery, not physical surgery. Because you see, I can cut my hand off. It does nothing to my heart. And the problem is in my heart. So we do heart surgery. We don't cut our hands off and feet off and pluck our eyes out. But he made the point. If there is something causing you to sin with your hand that you're doing, stop doing it. If your feet are taking you places you shouldn't go to bars and clubs, stop doing it. If your eyes are watching pornography, stop doing it. It's the point. Do radical surgery 
whatever is necessary to make sure you stop. So be careful, little hands, what you touch. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And careful, little feet, where you go. Your influence. And what influences you? Now, a word about hell. Jesus used the Greek word here for hell, the word Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. Here's a picture today, the Valley of Hinnom. It is a valley southwest of Jerusalem. You see the city of Jerusalem. Today, it's uh, nice and green and luscious. In fact, they have a park there. Families go there. That was not that way in biblical days. Let me give you a background of that valley. The Valley of Hinnom began to be defiled in the eyes of Jews in the Old Testament. They sacrificed children to the god of Molech. Molech was a god who would, it was, a, it was a, just a chair, basically, that sat there. He was seated, and he had his arms out like this. And they would heat up this idol, and, and Jews and other nations would come and put their newborn babies in the arms of Molech as it was heated up, and, and they would sizzle, basically sizzle to death in his arms as a sacrifice to Molech. Hoping that Molech would bless them as a people, as a family. It's despicable. And so God fiercely condemned the sacrifice of Molech to Molech, the children in this valley of Hinnom. That's where they did it, southwest of Jerusalem in the valley. And so King Josiah came along and stopped the practice, but the Jews from then on saw the valley of Hinnom as defiled, and they wouldn't even go down there. They'd have no part of it. So as a result, King Josiah made it. That's where they took their refuse and their, their garbage. It became a city dump. So in Jesus' day, the Valley of Hinnom was a place no Jew, they didn't even like looking at it. They would go by and not even look. They didn't want to go down in it. It was defiled. And down in the Valley of Hinnom, you have trash, you have garbage, you have dead bodies that are all the time. They would take bodies off of the cross that was cru they were crucified. When, when family members did not claim bodies from the cross, which is very common. They'd be embarrassed by a relative who had to be crucified because they were a criminal. If the families didn't claim the body, take the bodies off the cross, they'd throw them in the dump. They'd throw them in the Valley of Hinnom. So all the time you had dead bodies there at night while animals would come and pick at the, at the, the flesh off the, the bodies and you had worms in the garbage constantly. And, and, and so it's a place the Jews just despised and didn't want any part of it. They, it, it was despicable. And Jesus... Gehenna is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times by Jesus. Jesus said, to give you Jews a picture of hell, it's like the Valley of Hinnom. It's a place you don't want to go. You don't want to think about. And then he described it in two phrases. Where the fire is not quenched, and their worm doesn't die. 
Now, the fire is not quenched. Obviously, the Valley of Hinnom, there were fires kind of smoldering all the time. They would burn their refuse and burn bodies. And so there were fires that were smoldering all the time. But the word fire in, in the New Testament talks about judgment. So hell is a place where God's judgment never ceases. Can you imagine being in a place under God's wrath constantly? Boom, boom, boom. God's wrath, boom, never lets up. He said that's a place where God's wrath never lets up. It's hell. And the second thing, where their worm doesn't die. Well, there were worms in the garbage at the Valley of Hinnom. But what was he talking about? Their worm, not the worms. Their worm doesn't die. It's personal. What did he mean? The word worm that's used there literally means and references your memory, your conscience. So Jesus is saying a place where God's wrath never lets up and your memory never dies. You'll have a memory of every time you rejected Jesus, a memory of every time you led somebody the wrong way, a memory of every time God wanted you to do something, you said no, a memory of every time you failed God, a memory that never dies. That's hell. Now these aren't the words of a fire and brimstone Baptist preacher these are the words of your Lord that everybody thought talked just love all time he loves us enough to warn us about hell and said careful of your influence it's in the context of your influence and then we'll go to number three letter C on your outline your own influence verse 15 Verse 49, Jesus said, everyone will be salted with fire. Most theologians have no clue what he's talking about there. It's obviously a reference to Leviticus 2.13, where the, the priest, when offering the sacrifices, would put salt on the animal. But we don't know why he's referencing that here. A lot of theories out there, we really don't know. The most common one is, there may be a reference to the trials we face and the fires and our influence. We don't really know. Look at verse 50. Salt is good. But if salt is not salty, it's worthless. Every time salt is mentioned by Jesus, it's a reference to your influence. Salt influences. Back in biblical days, it had three roles. It was a preservative. They didn't have a lot of things that, they didn't have preservatives in those days like we do today. They might have been better off for it, but they didn't have the preservatives that we do. So they used salt as a preservative, but they used it secondly to prevent decay. When they would use salt, things would not decay as fast as they would otherwise. And then they used it to add flavor as we do as well today. They also used salt as payment uh, the Latin salt for salt is sal, S-A-L. We get the word salary from it. They, you, they paid the troops in salt because it's valuable in those days. Salt was used for a lot of things. And Jesus said salt is influential. And you need to be the salt of our culture. 
Folks, our, our society needs preservation. You're the salt. And, and our culture needs prevention from decay, and you're the salt. And it needs the flavor of truth, and you are salt. We are to be influencers for Christ and for good. We can complain about our culture all we want, but Jesus said, you're the salt. You're the salt of the earth. Be influencers. Do something about it. Be salt and be light. Some of you may have heard the story of Hudson Taylor. He was born in Liverpool, England, 1800s. His mom and dad were godly Methodists. They, um, they wanted a little boy. God gave him a boy. And whenever he was born, they prayed for two things. They said, God, I want him to become a believer, Jesus. And we'd love for him to become a missionary and go to China. They always had a fascination, the, the Taylors did, with the Far East. And they said, it, God, it would please us to no end if you'd save our boy and send him to China. Well, he was saved at 17. And at 21... Eight years, 1853, he was on a ship headed to Shanghai as a missionary to China. His parents were so pleased God answered the prayers. When he got there, Hudson Taylor thought, the way that I influence this culture here in China, the greatest way is I need to immerse myself in three things. I need to, I need to immerse myself in Mandarin. I need to learn this language. So he started ma learning Mandarin as best he could. Secondly, he immersed himself in studying medicine. He thought, if I can somehow help meet physical needs, if I can know more about medicine, and, and let that be a bridge to share Jesus with him. So he started studying medicine. And then third of all, he said, I'm going to immerse myself in the Word of God. And over and over, he, just, he immersed himself in the Word of God. But he noticed something. He was a lot different than the people who lived there. He wore a long black trench coat every day. And they dressed differently. All other missionaries, as they go to other countries, they would dress like their native land, and they wouldn't dress like the natives. And so Hudson Taylor said, why don't I dress like the Chinese? So he ditched the old long black trench coat, and he, and he started wearing Chinese dress. He shaved his head back to here, put pigtails in the back of it, and he was one of them. And all the other missionaries criticized Hudson Taylor for that. And he criticized back. He said, you other missionaries, you just want a social club. We're here to bring Jesus. And he said, you're having your meetings. I'm going out in the field and I'm giving them gospel tracts in Mandarin. And one after another after another came to know Christ. And Hudson Taylor impacted that Chinese culture powerfully. He stayed 51 years. And he finally got sick and had to go back. And then where's where he died. But after 51 years when he went back, everybody loved Hudson Taylor among the Chinese. And they loved his Jesus. And by the time he went back, he had led 18,000 Chinese to Christ. He had, he had enlisted 800 missionaries to come join him over 51 years, and he had started 125 
Christian schools, many of them still going in China. Hudson Taylor, you'll see his picture right there. And then guess what happened? He died in 1905. A few years ago, a hundred years after his death, just a few years ago, the communist government of China wanted his influence erased. They're tired of people still remembering Hudson Taylor a hundred years later. They're tired of Hudson Taylor's Jesus. And so here's what the government did. The government of China commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor that cast him in a negative light. They commissioned the author to write details distorting the facts of Hudson Taylor, putting him in a bad light, removing his Christian influence, and discrediting his name so current Chinese will stop remembering Hudson Taylor and the Jesus he talked about. So they commissioned the author to write the book just a few years ago. And here's what happened. The author started conducting research into Hudson Taylor and became increasingly impressed with Hudson Taylor. Finally, the author got to the place where he said, I cannot complete this assignment with a clear conscience. He said, I'm laying down my pen. I'm renouncing atheism. I'm receiving Jesus as my personal Savior, the God he talked about, at the risk of his own life. The influence, a hundred years later, still didn't die. Folks, live your life in such a way that 100 years from now, the devil can't erase what you do. But be careful who influences you along the way. God, thank you today for this passage. It's a hard one in many ways. But God, I just pray that you would take this passage today, bury it in our hearts, and Lord, may we be influencers for Christ in a culture who desperately needs Jesus. Father, may we, may we be careful of how we influence others. May we be careful of how we influence those new believers in a church. God, may we be careful not to exclude people in our, in our circles need to be included. Lord, may we be careful who influences us. And Father, may we be careful with our hands, our eyes, and our feet that they'll not lead us down the wrong paths. Lord, may the power of influence be on our minds today. And Father, I want to pray for those today that need Jesus as Savior, just like, the, just like the author who renounced everything in the past and turned to Christ. I pray that we'll have those either online or in person do the same today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.